0: The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: Jim Clapper spent 50 years in service of this country, first in military intelligence and then moving up the chain to director of national intelligence. He's served during some of the most sensitive challenges we've faced in recent history, including the 2016 election when the intelligence community uncovered evidence of Russian interference in our election. Now he's a passionate advocate for confronting the Russian challenge and getting to the bottom of what happened in 2016 and has drawn the constant ire of President Trump and his supporters. Jim Clapper just published a book called Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence, and he sat down with me recently on a visit to the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. Jim Clapper, it's so good to have you here. I know you're on a, on a national tour now. Surprisingly to you, you say. Yeah. Not, uh, I, I told you that when uh, uh, I, I, I first made your acquaintance when I was an aide to the president, we were in some meeting together, and I would have said you were the least likely guy <laughs> to be doing a national book tour or becoming a television personality, but events have thrust you into that place. Well, first, David, uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here, and I would
2: have agreed with you uh, had you (laughs) said that to me. Um, And what brought me here, well, uh, I've seen a lot of bad things in 50-plus years in intelligence, but uh, never anything that upset me as much as watching – what the Russians uh, did in the run-up to our 2016 election. And I decided uh, after that, that uh, I'd been urged by people to write a book, mainly just to record the living through 50 years of intelligence community history. But the real catalyst for uh, putting aside my fears (laughs) uh, to draw a line from the book was that, and uh, I decided it was uh, actually out of sense of duty, I think more than anything, to uh, convey what I learned, as much as I could, uh, to as much of the public that was interested and would
1: pay attention. Which turns out to be a lot of people are interested in this, as they should be. They're also interested in you, and I want to start... uh, with a little bit of your own personal history, because you you came by intelligence uh, genetically. Genetically, yes, yeah. You're not the first intelligence officer in your in your family. Right, my dad was uh, uh, a
2: signal intelligence officer uh, for his 28 years in the army. And uh, starting World War II, he served during Korea, and then. Uh, in Vietnam, in fact, coincidentally, we were uh, together in Vietnam. Our tours just coincidentally yeah, overlapped by seven months—an unusual circumstance. Yeah. So, and <clears throat> I always tell people, if if your dad's still alive, give him a hug because uh, I didn't really appreciate until I wrote this book um, the tremendous impact and influence my dad had on me and, and uh, whatever success I, I've. Been fortunate and been blessed to have is really due to his influence.
1: Well, uh, tell me about signal intelligence and what your dad, what, what he, what drew him to that. He was drafted in in World he, War he II. He was
2: drafted and uh, uh, went to officer candidate school. And you know, when the war ended, most everybody demobilized, took off the uniform, and he, for whatever reason, got. Caught up in in the work work of uh, signal intelligence, and that explain what that is pro, for f- those profoundly who shrank know. after World War II. Well, basically, what signal intelligence is is the collection the interception of uh, communications messages not necessarily intended for you as a recipient, and the purpose is to uh, glean and in, uh, useful intelligence. In World War II, it was. Uh, May have been the heyday for signal intelligence because it had it was kept very secret, and it had a huge impact on the outcome of the war because of the great insight we gained by breaking into both Japanese and German communications.
1: And uh, anyone saw the great film *The Imitation Game*, would uh, would uh, in the British breaking of the Nazi codes would be.
2: Well, there's a story, but you know the Enigma machine, and of course Bletchley Park, yes, which right. was the—that's actually kind of the origin of a the, the very special intelligence relationship that yet pertains between the United Kingdom and the United States, and it it goes back to that early those dark days of World War II and the, the tremendous impact that uh, our uh, cryptologic uh, people. Uh, and the things they were able to do in both both theaters of war, both against the Germans and the Japanese.
1: And he became so he became deeply interested. In he this.
2: did, and uh, decided to stay in the army and continue. Uh, and of course, that was kind of tough in a peacetime army after World War II. It shrank, and uh, the pay wasn't very good. And my dad, uh, I think he was a first lieutenant for about six years, something like that. So it was tough doing it. So he was. He was clearly uh captured by it and, and dedicated to it and uh somehow over the years uh i i that got passed on to me.
1: you moved around quite a bit as military families do we did
2: uh my mother and I were on uh first uh one of the first boatloads of dependents to go anywhere after world war two and um it was kind of primitive in those days and i remember we uh on the, my dad's duty station was in Asmara, Eritrea, on the east, east of of Africa. Very small U.S. Army SIGINT post there, and so it took us eight weeks to go from Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, where my mother and I were, to Asmara, and we spent two weeks in the Brooklyn Navy Yard while they tried to figure out what what shots to give us. Then we finally sailed on an old troop ship and went to uh, Leghorn, Italy, and uh, we're sailing in the harbor and hit a mine left over from the war, which blew a rudder off the ship. And I still have very distinct memory of being hustled up on deck with my mother and uh, lifeboats being lo- lo- lowered. And I uh, had a huge life jacket on, way too big for me, that my mother was holding on to. So, anyway, were, you,
1: were you scared or? Th- yeah, or or I was through? pretty. I
2: was pretty frightened. My mother mm-hmm. was trying to be cool about it, uh, but she, she had to have been very frightened by it. But. Uh, the crew uh, reacted, and uh, the ship didn't sink. They towed us into the harbor and repaired the rudder. And we went on, and eventually landed in Alexandria, Egypt, and found our way down to uh, Asmara, Eritrea.
1: I read interesting. Uh, you you lived in Philly, and uh, you uh, cracked the code on oh, yeah. uh, on what the on, on on public safety communications on your TV set.
2: Yeah, this uh, the story. I was about I was twelve years old. This is. My line here is, this is when I first knew I was going to be an intelligence officer. So we were on a change of duty stations. We left Japan, northern Japan, on the northernmost island of Hokkaido in in the summer of 1953, and my dad was being assigned to Fort Devens, Massachusetts. So typically in many military families, certainly in ours, uh, my parents would drop my sister and me off at one of the grandparents' Go ahead to the next duty station. Find a place to live. Get set up. You know, unpack the household goods and all that, and then come back as a us. So that's what they did in the summer of '53. We just come back from Japan, and so they dropped us at my grandparents in Philadelphia. And so the standard line in uh, for grandparents, is, of course, is to spoil grandchildren. I'm doing that myself now. I have four yeah, grandchildren.
1: I applaud that as a grandparent. <laughs>
2: so. Uh, the big thing uh, the big thing in the day was television, which was a a big novelty. And my grandparents had a television in their house. We didn't have television in Japan in those days, and in the early 50s. So this was really a novelty to me. So they allowed me to stay up as late as I wanted, watch as much television as I wanted. It was great. So one night, one Friday night, I, uh, I watched a movie, and the movie ended, and I was— going to do the equivalent of what we'd say today is surfing, except in those days you had to go up and actually turn the dial on the, on the TV. And there's only four channels. So I was <laughs> turning the channel between Channel 4 and Channel 5 in Philadelphia, and I heard talking on the television and no picture. And that was strange. So I just stood there for about 10 or 15 minutes holding on to the selector dial, keeping it between Channel 4 and 5, and I finally figured out it was the Philadelphia Police Department dispatcher well, in those days in Philadelphia, there's a lot of murder and mayhem on Friday and Saturday nights. So, this is really interesting stuff just to see how the police reacted to these calls for domestic disturbances and shootings and you know, run- runaway kids and uh, cars they're chasing and all that. It's just interesting. More interesting to, than the other four interesting stations. Interesting. Listen to it. Yeah. So, I, I ran out to the kitchen. I got tired of holding it. I got, got some toothpicks and stuck the toothpick in the selector <laughs> dial. So, I guess I hacked my grandparents' TV set. So then the next night, I got a map of Philadelphia and I, from my grandfather, city map. I started plotting out where the calls went. And then, you know how the police use 10 codes? Yeah. So I started listening to them, figuring out what they were, and I, I got a set of three-by-five <laughs> cards. I guess that's, we'd call it metadata today. <laughs> and I started keeping records on this. And so pretty soon, um, I could figure out, just by the way they dispatched police cars, what the police district boundaries were. And... And uh, I also figured out the high crime areas. And I figured out how, just how the Philadelphia Police Department is organized and operated just by listening. And so I kept, I kept all these records, and I had my map and all that. So about three weeks later, my mom and dad come back to pick up my sister me, and me. My dad just sort of casually made conversations. Says, said, well, hey, what have you been doing this summer? So I whip out my map and my 3 by 5 cards and I gave him about a 20 or 30 minute discourse <laughs> on the com- on the complete rundown on how the Philadelphia Police Department is organized and operated. And, and it said, was 65 years ago but I'll never forget the expression on my dad's face. He said, "My god, I've raised my own replacement."
1: <laughs> so that's when I knew I was going to be an intelligence officer. You uh in in reading your uh, biography it struck it struck me that you you tried very hard. There are a lot of people who uh tried hard not to get into the military. You tried very hard to get into the military. And, in fact, you failed uh, a physical exam uh, because of a vision issue. I, uh, I, I, I,
2: I was fortunate enough. My dad had a friend in the Marine Corps, and they, they weren't quite so picky about uh, uh, visual acuity. And I had my left eye would not correct to 2020. Pretty close, but not quite. So the Marines took me, and I enlisted in the Marine Corps uh, on the 2nd of February, 1961, and then uh, uh, completed half their uh, platoon leader course down at Quantico. I really did want to specialize in intelligence, and I would come back from Germany, where I was living with my dad, who was assigned there, and uh, finished. I went to the University of Maryland and took Air Force ROTC because I could uh, specialized in intelligence, and so that's what, I, that's what I did.
1: So let me ask you this. Um, we've all heard the president's had a few things to say about you, and and, <laughs> yeah. and in fairness, you've had a few things to say about him as well, but um, does it, it bother you as someone who's, who's spent so much of his life uh, in service to the country and in uniform to have your uh, patriots, patriotism challenged? By a guy who avoided service in Vietnam for bone spurs? Well,
2: first of all, yes, it does. But I have to say that, uh, you know, speaking uh, critically of a president's commander chief, very difficult for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I was raised to respect the office and particularly as, as commander-in-chief that's something I
1: you met one right as an early, in your early
2: years yes, you, I did. you, you I had a brush uh, with President Kennedy. President Kennedy President Kennedy when I was at uh, I happened to be in a rope line once at uh, Otis Air Force Base Massachusetts where I went to ROTC summer camp and so uh he flew in and uh they filed us out uh, all the ROTC cadets were in summer camp then and uh I ended up in the in the rope line, and President Kennedy uh, went. It was about eight of us, I think, in the front row, and he went and shook hands with each cadet. And I was about the sixth or seventh one in line, and uh, his typical question was, "What what aircraft are you going to fly?" Since we're Air Force, and got to me, and, well, "What are you going to fly?" And I said, "I'm not going to fly. I want to be an intelligence officer." And he, sort of, did a double take, and he said something like, "Well." We need intelligence officers, and you know, he kept on going. I'm sure he forgot about it, but I I never forgot about it. It was uh, was quite inspirational. But you you
1: were saying that you were you were raised and trained to respect the commander, exactly. And then, of
2: course, when I served uh, in the military for a total of 34 years, counting my Marine Corps reserve time and uh, active duty in the Air Force, so it just it's just instinctive. It's just part of my being to want to support in respect to Commander-in-Chief, uh, the president is Commander-in-Chief. And, um, you know, with this president, that's, uh, that's a challenge. And uh, I was asked once uh, uh, during a CNN interview when I got a, uh, a, a bad tweet from uh, President Trump, and um, I was asked, um, gee, doesn't that bother you? I said, no, it doesn't, and that in itself is a sad commentary. Um, I remember distinctly if, after the uh, when Sally Yates was in the well, ended up as the acting attorney general, and she and I appeared together for a Senate ju- a Judiciary Committee subcommittee chaired by uh, Lindsey Graham, and uh, the president tweeted that said uh, that uh, both Sally Yates and James Clapper uh, choked uh, during the hearing, which I don't, I don't think we did, but. <laughs> anyway, I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, if I had showed up at the Oval Office and President Obama had said to me, Boy, you really choked on that hearing yesterday, I'd have been devastated. But but this
1: president no. Yeah, it just struck me that uh when I read how hard you fought to get into into the Air Force and into the service, that um it might it must particularly gall you uh to to have your Patriotism question. Well, uh, and, and it isn't service yeah, question.
2: It, 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 but it, you know, it isn't just me. It's uh, others that mm-hmm. he's uh, similarly uh, well, attacking. I mean, as, you know, as private citizens, here's yeah. the president of the United States reaching out and attacking individuals just because they don't agree with him or, or they're they're not in the business of adulating him. Uh, it's really,
1: uh, well, it's very uh, very unusual, very abnormal. You. Um, you had early in your career supervisory responsibilities, and you, you've written about uh, one of the things that you were called upon to do was to, which was to discharge um, yeah. uh, m- m- service people uh, who are homosexual. Um, yeah I, early on in my uh,
2: career, uh, my, first, my first assignment after I went through uh, technical training, uh, I was at Kelly Air Force Base in San Antonio and I somebody decided to be a good career. Uh, enhancing thing for me to learn a little bit about administering troops and, uh, you know, Article 15's uh, non judicial punishment, uh, supervising the mess hall, inspecting barracks and the motor pool, and all those kind of basic military things. And so, one of the things I, I, was, I had to do was to discharge two airmen who were uh, outed uh, as uh, homosexuals. And in the day, there was no choice. You were discharged automatically. And the best you could hope for was a general discharge, if not dishonorable. And I remember at the time, I mean, I was just, I was a first lieutenant, I was a cog in the big machine, here's the rules and, you know, process the paperwork. And I just remember then, this is, you know, 60, 1964, 65, what a waste that was and what an injustice uh, it was. And, Sometime later on, I I, I, uh, I think I had I had a chance to tone for that, and uh, um, you know, the military has always been uh, an, an institution of social change, and uh, I think the the graceful way the military uh, openly accepted uh, gays uh, was a phenomenal achievement, and it speaks volumes about. Uh, what a great institution uh, the military is for this country.
1: I was in the room, perhaps you were too, when uh, President Obama signed an end to the don't ask, don't tell policy. And it, the, the person who got the biggest ovation in that room was Mike Mullen, the exactly. chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It was really one of the most moving experiences I exactly. had when I was in when Washington. A,
2: a tremendous example of noncombatant courage was Mike's statement, I think his own statement before I think the Senate Armed Services Committee, when he highlighted what an injustice it was to force people to hide their identities just so they could serve the country. And that was a, a brave and courageous thing. And I, I cite that quote, uh, his exact quote in, in my book. I mean, yeah.
1: it, was a, it was a tremendous act of uh, leadership. You went. To, you did two tours of duty in Vietnam. You flew uh, 73 combat support missions in Laos and Cambodia. You um, uh, and you you rose quickly through the in the 80s through the intelligence community. In in the early 90s, Dick Cheney, who was the Secretary of Defense, appointed you as head of the Defense Intelligence Agency. That was a that was a, a rough go for you because you. You tried to reorganize the Defense Intelligence Agency in a way that conformed to what you thought was the emerging world and not the Cold War world on the theory that the Cold War had just ended. Right. Uh, but that wasn't well received. No, it was not. And uh,
2: uh, what occasioned that uh, the need to do something was because we were enjoined by the Congress to reap the peace dividend after the fall of the wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, the general judgment was we don't need this huge military, and we certainly don't need this big intelligence community. So we embarked on a period of about uh, seven or eight years of reductions. And so what I determined early on was that the organization and structure, DIA, was not going to have enough people to populate it. So we we had to do something else. The lesson learned there is if you're going to do a reorganization of big bureaucracy, you better get the buy-in of the people that are affected. And I didn't do such a great job of that. So uh, I had to do another reorganization, undo the ill effects of the first one. And so I become, as the older I've gotten, the less and less enamored I am of reorganizations as a way to cure uh, issues that stem more from leadership or lack thereof than structure.
1: You you left the military uh, for a while, and then you got uh, inveigled to come back. You you probably <laughs> thought you were done. I uh, did. I,
2: I uh, retired from the Mil- from the Air Force in uh, uh, September 95. 1995, and uh, was although I was, you know, I was in industry, but basically working back for the intelligence community. And I served on the NSA advisory board for four years, and I did uh, Cobar towers investigation and. Did some other things that uh, retirees typically do back for the government. then uh, in the summer of 2001, out of the blue, I got a call asking me if I would be willing to come back and serve as director of what was then the National Imagery Mapping Agency. And what I'd learned during my sojourn out of the government was that I just didn't get the psychic income I got from public service. Uh, the money was great, but somehow making the owner of the company I was working for richer just didn't motivate me too much. So... I jumped at the chance and uh, uh, you know, stayed with NEMA, which transformed into the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which it is today, uh, and was there almost five
1: years. And you were there uh, during a pretty uh, eventful time because 9-11 happened. And uh, what followed was the war in Iraq. And the intelligence community came under siege for that. Right. Uh, properly so, do you think? <clears throat> Absolutely. Uh,
2: and I say that, uh, David, because my fingerprints were on the infamous National Intelligence Estimate uh, of uh, October 2002, which addressed uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And, of course, we, as we painfully learned later, there were no weapons of mass destruction in, in Iraq. So it was a terrible mistake. Uh, what I like to point out, though, is uh, the intelligence community is a learning organization, and we went to work immediately after that to improve processes to preclude a recurrence uh, of that. That NIE, and NIEs are the, at the apex of the pecking order for intelligence products, and they, they typically always go to the president and other senior policymakers. So they do have, they're important, and they do have Im- Im- impact. And then NIE was used by the administration, which kind of wanted that message mm-hmm. uh, as a justification for invading Iraq. So it just shows the the
1: implications if you don't if intelligence doesn't get it right. And uh, you know that the, the 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 charge by those who uh, opposed the war was that the intelligence was essentially manufactured to support the political result. Well.
2: I wouldn't say manufactured as much as uh, it shows uh, a negative example of the n- bad impacts of, of uh, groupthink. The major change we made, though, David, that uh, which prevails yet today, is is examining more critically the veracity of the sources used t- to generate the the uh, analytic product, and we didn't do that, and a lot of the intelligence that, the key intelligence in that document was generated by a bad source, a a bad human intelligence source. And so the practice uh, instituted, which I followed during the six and a half years I was DNI, was that every time we convene a meeting of the National Intelligence Board, which is the senior representatives of all 16 components of the intelligence community to vet and approve NIEs, the very first thing on the meeting agenda is to review the sources. If you have one one report from your organization that contribute that's footnoted in that national intelligence estimate, then the agency head or a senior representative has to certify the veracity of that reporting. So there's a lot more discipline now in assessing the credibility of sources. And if they we learn later they go bad, you know we pull that out of those reports. So that was among many changes we made. To strengthen the process was, I think, the key one.
1: Looking back at that, uh, how much did that decision shape uh, the future of that region, the events that we've seen since 2003, and uh, how would history have been different had uh, the intelligence been well right, and and there not been this incursion?
2: It's hard to know, but presumably, uh, at least that justification for uh, invading Iraq wouldn't have been there. Maybe it would have been invaded anyway. I don't know, but at least the 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 intelligence wasn't the excuse or justification for it. So, if there weren't an invasion, whether it's it's a you know it's almost an imponderable about how things would would have been. Probably more stable. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Arab Spring wouldn't have happened. Uh, I know there's a whole. It's hard to know, but there's a whole bunch of a sequence of events that may not have happened or would have taken a different course than they did as a result
1: of our invading Iraq. How many how much time have you spent contemplating that to, that that episode?
2: Well, not just me personally, but I think institutionally, uh, the intelligence community has contemplated that a lot. And of course there was a uh, yet another another commission mm-hmm. um, that was stood up just to study Weapons of mass destruction and and reporting, and there were a number of, I think, seventy-six recommendations, something like that, they made to enhance to improve intelligence collection, analysis, and reporting on weapons of mass destruction. So, as I say, we try to be a learning organization, even when it's forced on us.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I want to uh, jump ahead to um, to your. tenure as, as DNI. You, you you did a stint as Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence. You worked with Bob Gates right. uh, in that role. Yeah, Bob,
2: uh, we actually go back to when uh, I served as Director of DIA, and then Bob was Director of CIA, and then dual had as Director of Central Intelligence. And he's a friend and actually a mentor uh, of mine. And it was he who asked me to uh, come back. When he became Secretary of Defense, just to finish the Bush term, which would have been about 19 months. And I asked a, a small favor of him. If I said, you could probably ease this for me at home if you call my wife, which, <laughs> which he did. And then he, he recounted that in his book, which mm-hmm. was a little embarrassing. But anyway, the 19 months turned into three and a half years because unprecedented thing happened when President Obama— uh, a Democrat asked Bob Gates, a Republican, to stay on as Secretary of Defense. Never happened before. And it, it was a great choice, a great decision. I, I, great admiration, respect, uh, and esteem for Bob Gates. So the 19 months that I promised my wife turned into three and a half years. And I thought, well, and my plan was when Bob walked out the river entrance of the Pentagon, I was going to follow him about a millisecond later. And one day he summoned me to his office, and we had a little one-on-one meeting in April of 2010. And he said, uh, "You know, we we really need you to do this, uh, you know, the DNI." And I said, uh, "No." I uh, at the time I was pushing 70 years old. Now I'm dragging it. <laughs> and I big thing was I did not want to go through another uh, political confirmation as I had for uh, Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, which was awful. Yeah. It got prolonged. I was held and I just hated it. So I didn't want to do that anymore. But um, when they run you in the Oval Office, and it uh, was the first time I ever met President Obama, and, you know, the Commander-in-Chief says, uh, I need you to do this job. And, you know, I'm a duty guy at heart, so I said, I'll I'll give it a go. And so that, that turned into six and a half years. Now I am
1: definitely done. Well, you never know. You never <laughs> want to say never, General. Uh, what— what um you mentioned that Bob Gates was a Republican. Did you consider yourself a partisan in any no,
2: way? No, not really. Uh, Had you I mean, voted I, in one way or the other? I voted both ways. Mm-hmm. I, I voted, but mm-hmm. I voted for re- Republican presidents and Democratic presidents. And I was uh, the, and, um, the family environment I was brought up in was new, you know, political p- political neutrality. And I, I
1: unusual just, in the military. There, there. there well, no,
2: a- I, I don't think so. I think. Uh, uh, military serves the commander in chief, whoever it is, mm-hmm. and I, I, it was kind of that sort of ethos that I uh, grew up in, and, mm-hmm. and certainly that's what I adapted when I I came in the
1: military myself. You, uh, as head of DNI, we should say that office came into being as a result of 9/11 to promote coordination among exactly. the 17 intelligence agencies. Um, you, there were there were three things I want to ask you about, and then I want to get to. Uh, where we are today right. in in 2016 um the first uh was uh, uh bin laden and uh just very briefly uh the, what was that like making that call tom Dylan was here the other day and we talked about yeah. this um uh, president has said that he was very much reliant on the intelligence in making that well, decision.
2: I'll tell you, uh, David, I, I, that was a tremendous uh, a courageous act, uh, decision that President Obama made because for two reasons. We didn't have you know the intelligence we had was less than perfect. We did not have certitude that Os- uh, Osama bin Laden was, was in, in that compound. And uh, I'll never forget the last meeting we had, and I'm sure Tom will recall this as well, which I think was on a, th- a Thursday. And the president went around the table, as he typically did, and asked everybody's thoughts on, should we do it? And if so, how? And he got responses all over the map. There was not unanimity among his, his close, his national security team. And we put a lot of a lot of discussion about uh, a percentage of confidence, which which to me is not very meaningful. It, in the end, it's all subjective judgment anyway. And I just and I said that to him, and I said, uh, for me, I am going to go with the the analysts, the experts have been following this for years, and their their assessment, their their instinct really is, they're sure he's there. And I also felt that we should do it with, by with a raid as opposed to a standoff weapon because you have thinking people on the ground that can make make decisions given whatever the situation is.
1: Because part of it was you want to make sure that
2: you did get him. Well, you, that you got him, but also, I mean. The, Part of the imponderable here was was whether the Pakistanis would detect mm-hmm. uh, the raid, and they had, they had a long way to fly from Afghanistan and back,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and what their reaction might be, and uh, would, there, would there be a hostile reaction, uh, how in danger would our, our troops be, and all those kind of factors. And I just thought it was a, uh, a very brave, courageous decision that uh, the president made on less than perfect information and not unanimous Advice from
1: his advisors. I want to ask you about uh, Edward Snowden and that whole controversy. And you, you're you're blunt about this uh, as well. That was uh, that that moment uh, w- became a difficult one for you, not just because uh, of all of the intelligence that was disgorged uh, by Snowden. And I know that you're not you don't buy into the. His motivations I've, in in doing it. You've called him a narcissist, and uh,
2: well, um, the major takeaway. Uh, well, first of all, on, on Snowden himself, if if he had limited what he had exposed only to so-called domestic intelligence, I could
1: I could almost understand what he did. In other words, making the case that there was been this broad collection of data that involved American yes, citizens. Yes, and, and although I
2: think the uh, the portrayal of that program was profoundly exaggerated, and it became a, a big narrative that we in the government just could never, have, could never defeat. But the fact is that he exposed so much else that had nothing to do with so-called domestic intelligence that had profoundly damaged our intelligence capability. And if you're a taxpayer you are paying for the recovery from the damage that he's done. I will say, though, that the lesson learned here was the need for transparency. You know, the intelligence community needs to be more transparent. There's always a, an aura of mystery about the intelligence community and what the intelligence community and people in the intelligence community are doing, and that aura of mystery inherently gives rise to suspicion that we're doing something untoward on illegal immoral and, and ethical whatever and unfortunately uh, history's re- repeated well you lived
1: through some of it i mean there we were did. there were abuses of intelligence uh, for political purposes in during the, vietnam in, during vietnam and during the watergate period that led to uh, the development of the FISA Court, so that right, and the, and the stand were... up
2: of the uh, the Church Pike hearings, which was, led to the stand up of the two oversight committees mm-hmm. uh, in, in the House in 1976 and the Senate in 77, I think. Mm-hmm. And those are a important fixture in uh, the oversight of our of the intelligence committee. And the problem is, intelligence inherently cannot be fully open and transparent because of the nature of the work, right. Um, it's not like uh, Department of Agriculture or Department of Commerce because most of what they do is completely transparent. Well, yeah. it, can't, it can't be that way. I
1: weird. guess. I'm not sure anybody knows Maybe what not they anymore, either, but <laughs> it, used to, it used to be.
2: Maybe that's not a good example. But intelligence can't be. So that's why there's a double burden, an he- extra heavy burden placed on members uh, of the House and Senate, respectively, who are on those those two committees, because they have to be proxies or surrogates for the rest of the public. They'll represent them mm-hmm. to ensure that what the, the intelligence community is doing is legal, ethical, and moral. And that works when they are bipartisan. And when they're not, it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, on and, the, and one other thought I might add here. As desirable as transparency is in the interest of gaining the, 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 the faith, trust, and confidence of the American public, transparency is a two-edged sword. So the adversaries go to school on that very same transparency. So there's always a, a risk-gain judgment that intelligence people have to make about should we expose this capability or explain this program in the interests of confidence of the American public and trust that we're doing the right thing, or do we protect it so that we can continue it because of the valuable intelligence we gain from this
1: particular uh, source or method. You... you uh you were exposed uh, to criticism uh, because of the hearings surrounding uh, Snowden and a question that Senator Wyden uh, asked in which he uh, said, does the NSA collect any type of data uh, at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? And you said, no, sir, it does not. Yeah. And uh, you write the first about this. You've you spoken do. about this. I do. You, you, uh, and and with some, some regret. I do regret it. Um, and... That
2: statement you just quoted was at the end of a longer discourse preamble that he uh, spoke about. This was at the end of a hearing in March of 2013. uh, And the subject of the hearing is worldwide threat. So we'd already gone about two and a half hours on that subject. And then he brought this up. And I simply wasn't thinking about what Senator Wyden was asking about. What he was asking about so I, big, I made a big mistake, but I didn't lie, and there's a big difference. So, but what he was asking about was the uh, limited storage of uh, telephony business records metadata governed by what was then mm-hmm. Section 215 of the Patriot Act. Uh, what I was thinking about was another program, Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act uh, uh, Adjustments Act, Amendments Act, excuse me, is awkwardly worded, which governs the collection on non-U.S. persons overseas. Ergo, my attempt at an explanatory comment, amplification comment, that if such collection happened on U.S. persons, it would be inadvertent. Well, uh, that comment, by the way, makes no sense in the context of Section 215, which at least to me proves I wasn't even thinking about it. And by the way, had I been thinking about what Senator Wyden was
1: asking me about, you I would just, answered.
2: I'd have still been in a bad place because at the time the program was
1: classified. Mm-hmm. And this was an open session.
2: Yes, this mm-hmm. is an open session. So I've probably been up to the Hill 20, for 20 or 25 years testifying in hearings, both open and closed. I've answered probably dozens of hearings, answered maybe hundreds, thousands of questions, mm-hmm. and always endeavored to be truthful and straight about them. So... Gee, just for a change of pace, on this one question, <laughs> I guess I'll, I think I'll lie, symbol, just to be yeah, different. Yeah. And by the way, do it on live television in front of one of my oversight committees, mm-hmm. which on its face to me is in, incredible. So yes, I made a mistake, but I didn't lie, and I, I do regret it.
1: You began uh, this conversation by talking about what the Russians had, had done. Let's talk about that, and when—, when when did it become apparent to you what was happening in the 2016 election?
2: You know, I've been asked that question a lot, like, when did the light bulb come on? When, what was the exact moment when you knew this was different? Because the Russians have a long history of interfering in elections, theirs and other people's. And it goes back to at least the 60s, you know, the heyday of the Cold War, where the Russians were trying to influence our elections, but never as direct and aggressive as and as multifaceted as what they did in 2016. And it just, it sort of gradually unfolded. Uh, I think in the summer and fall of 16 is when it really, when we got more information from more sources, we began to understood the magnitude of what they were doing. Uh, it really was it was had a visceral impact on me. I, you know, I've seen a lot of bad stuff in 50 plus years in intelligence, but nothing like this. It really shook me because it, this was intended to
1: undermine the, the very fundamental pillars of our of our system. And you become more and more uh, uh, definitive over time. You believe not only what the I C. Uh, said at the time, which is that, uh, and in in January, that it w- this was a an operation that was meant to defeat Clinton, and, right. uh, and elect Trump. You believe that it actually uh, tipped the election? I do. And I have I have to point out, uh, David, when this ever this
2: topic comes up, that just to to reemphasize that the intelligence community assessment that we produced, published on the sixth of January in unclassified form. Um. Uh, did not render a judgment on whether the Russian meddling had any impact on yes. the out- outcome of the election. So it's important that I say that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that that was the official, no, no, that, yeah. because the intelligence community doesn't have the charter or the resources to do that. However, break, break. As a private citizen, having a pretty good understanding of, of, of the massive effort that the Russians mounted the diversity of sources and social media that they used, and the number of, of uh, American voters that they reached with their message, that to me, and then if you consider that with the, the fact that uh, the election turned on 80,000 votes or so in three in states, three states yes. it is stretches credulity in my mind to, to think that, that all of that had no impact on the election. In fact, I believe, because it, did, it didn't have to be that many votes, that the Russians swung it.
1: You look. Uh, you've obviously. But that I you've, have to you, you, add, add, add that is a. That's a. What no, no. You, you're, you're well opinion. disclaimed here. Informed you, you, opinion. You, you you um, uh. You've looked at what they've they did. I think somewhere I read you also said that what they did was uh, very much in concert with what the Trump campaign well, was doing.
2: What I the, what I point out in the book is the striking parallelism between the themes and the things that the Trump campaign was saying and doing and what the Russians were saying and doing. It was almost like an echo chamber, particularly on the subject of Hillary Clinton, her alleged scandals, her alleged maladies, both mental and physical. And it was striking parallelism. Not, I don't allege collusion. I don't know that. I didn't know it before I left. They the could
1: government. have just watched and observed. It what, could have been what what it the could Trump have been, campaign but was just, doing. It's just striking. So you guys it, didn't know about this June sixth meeting. We did not, yeah. we, thus proving that we we didn't surveil Trump Tower as as the president alleged. What 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 is your reaction to that meeting? You had Republican apparatchiks uh, uh, coming and offering material on Hillary Clinton, whether or not they produced it, they, uh, and you had people in the room, Paul Manafort in particular, who were pretty sophisticated about how the Russians operated. What do you, what do you conclude from that? Well,
2: it's, it's hard to say. Uh, I, don't, I can't tell whether this was kind of uh, you know the old radio show, Ted Mack's original Amateur Hour. They just <laughs> didn't know what they were doing. Or they did know. Uh, in which but wouldn't a guy they, like Manafort, was, who had such experience an, in that, with which the would Russians. mean an intent to collude? Now, collusion, obviously, as we all know, is not—that's not a legal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seemed to me that they—they were—they were, they were interested. The campaign was interested in help from whatever quarter it came, whether it was the Russians or UAE or anybody else, and it kind of contravenes. Our laws with respect to elections. So there, it would appear to me, as a, as a layman, not not a lawyer, mm-hmm. <laughs> that there was certainly an, an intent to collude. And if the Russians, if the, if the Russian interlocutors at that meeting came across with dirt, so called, on Hillary Clinton, I, it looks to me they would have accepted it.
1: Um, you you and know, by my, the
2: way, the, the president himself, as a candidate, exhorting the Russians. To go out and find the 30,000 missing emails is, again, uh, I thought, a a public exhortation to collude. What did you see? What did you think when you saw that? Well, I thought it was awful. I I just thought it was completely inappropriate for a candidate for the office of President of the United States to call on an adversary to help him publicly,
1: to help him with his campaign. Um, You know Mike Flynn. I do. Uh, you were uh, actually a colleague and a support of his appointment as head of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, what do you make of what's happened since? Well, first, I, it's
2: only appropriate to uh, acknowledge and salute Mike's long service uh, in, in the Army. He was a great military intelligence officer. I uh, helped officiate at his promotion ceremony, to three stars in the Women's Memorial, a wonderful ceremony, and he worked for me for about 11 months, uh, his first job as a three-star. And I supported him to be appointed as uh, Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, a job I had, I'd had uh, much earlier. Uh, things didn't work out for a number of reasons. Uh... Uh, both Dr. Mike Vickers, who was the, my successor, Under Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, who also has a responsibility for the intelligence agencies embedded in DOD, Department of Defense. And he had is- issues with uh, Mike Lynn and as did I. And we just agree, mutually agreed that we need to shorten his, his, his term.
1: Uh, None of the- those went to suspected uh, ties to Russians? No, no, anything? no.
2: This had more to for money For me, it was just sort of management issues. Uh, he was uh, having, a, you know, a negative impact on the employees, at, at, uh, and I was concerned about the. Uh, uh, so, what the provoked the- him?
1: Do you think? Uh, well,
2: I think uh, he, you know he took it pretty gracefully, and we had a wonderful send off for him uh, the following summer of, of of fourteen. I surmise. I don't know because I had not had much contact with him. He uh, became an angry man, and I think it ate at him that he, his time was curtailed, and, uh, uh, which is kind of sad. I mean, uh, the, the Mike Flynn I watched
1: at the Republican convention uh, was not the Mike Flynn I had known. He's a different person. And what about the Mike Flynn who's now pled guilty to lying to right. the FBI? Well. I, uh, I I feel bad
2: for him. I, I just think it's uh in a way it's a tragedy.
1: Um Hillary Clinton is someone you work very closely with. Uh what was your assessment of her? I thought she was uh
2: excellent in her job. She uh, my observations of her were primarily uh in just sitting next to her in the in the situation room. She always came to meetings uh, prepared uh, she was thoughtful, uh, had tremendous uh, work ethic. Uh, so, I, I, on a, a personal level, I was
1: uh, 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 I, I admired her. And what did you think about the whole email controversy? Well, as someone it, who's dealt with classified information, I thought
2: know? it was unfortunate uh, the lapse in in judgment on somebody's part. Uh, we The IC got involved in that because of the uh, referral of a sampling of emails from the department, uh, State Department Inspector General to the Intelligence Community Inspector General. And that was the predicate, actually, mm-hmm. for the uh, beginning of the FBI investigation on, uh, on, on, on those emails. Um, and it was just it was a very bad practice, uh, security practice, uh, to,
1: uh, to do that. And uh, I think it's very regrettable. Um, the dossier that has now become famous—the yes. the, steel dossier—what um, it's now been dismissed by the president and his supporters because of the salacious material in there as a smear job paid for by Democrats. That was the impetus for the FISA. Uh, for the FISA uh, warrant uh, on Carter Page. Um, How much of that dossier rings true to you? Well, first of all, another point
2: I always have to make here, we (laughs) did not use the dossier, which is actually a compendium of 17 separate memos. We did not use it as a source for the Intelligence Community Assessment. Some things in the dossier were corroborated in uh, our intelligence community assessment, and other things have been corroborated since, <clears throat> but we didn't use it because we couldn't validate the second, third order collection sources that were used to compile. That's it. the point you were making earlier about sources. So, I felt, and w- the four of us—that is, John Brennan, then Director of CIA, Jim Comey, Director of, then Director of the FBI, and then Admiral Mike Rogers, who just retired as Director of NSA. Our general sense was that we owed it to the president-elect to tell him that this thing was out there because our understanding was it was widely held throughout by the media. At least two members of Congress had it. So we felt as a duty to warn that we should tell the president-elect about this. Jim Comey was, was concerned about the potential counterintelligence implications. Mm-hmm. You know, the Russians are big on co- what they call Compromont, their acronym for compromising material, whether it's real or contrived. And that how they might try to use that to leverage, or influence the president. And and Jim felt strongly about he should be warned about that. So in the no good deed goes unpunished department, <laughs> we did that and tried to be as discreet about it as possible. So we necked down to just Jim and President like Trump at Trump Tower, and that's. So when it's not performed. to embarrass him yeah, exactly, and to keep it as discreet as possible. Mm-hmm. And of course since then there've been all kinds of uh criticism uh, about uh about our, our 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 doing that but some of what is in uh on, in those uh memos has
1: has been validated has been And, and some of the co- uh, compromising But not the is, no, some to, of the comp- to be sure the salacious stuff this, no let's leave the salacious stuff aside one of the Things that was asserted in the in, in that compendium of memos that was the so-called dossier was a suggestion that there were financial levers that the Russians had on the president that could be used to compromise him. Are, are, what, what what do you say about that? Well, I mean, it, it, you know, they have had dealings and
2: attempted dealings with the Russians, and, and uh, I understand. I've, I've, I'm given to understand that uh, uh, the, the Trump organization uh, turned to the Russians for financing, bank loans, and this sort of thing. But I, I don't know any of the details. And I certainly didn't know any of them. Would that be compromising? The if well, if it they well, it, it could be. And, if they course, in money laundry, you know, there are all like kinds it. of uh, theories about uh, um, why is it that the president refuses to be critical of the Russians or, or particularly of Vladimir Putin. And— of course, that's one explanation. Maybe you know, he has something on him. I don't know. Or there's a financial entanglement that, uh, or entanglements, plural, that he doesn't want exposed. Or as Mike Hayden suggests, it's just a, a question of incompetence. Or uh, President Trump is just taken with strongmen, with autocrats. He admires them. So, I, or, or some combination
1: thereof. I, I don't know. What do you make of the president's, I mean, you have been a frequent visitor to his twit. Twitter account, as we mentioned earlier, uh, he has been brutal on, the, uh, on, on all those who were involved in this probe, suggesting that it was a politically motivated right. probe. How do you react to that personally, and what impact does it have on the, on the IC, on the, on the Department of Justice, on the FBI? Well,
2: uh, it's not a good thing when the president is uh, berating and demeaning uh, these important institutions of ours. I mean, I think right now intelligence community is not exactly in the crosshairs and and uh most of uh, the president's wrath is focused on uh Department of Justice and the FBI and and it's it's clear to me in fact, you know Rudy Giuliani acknowledged as much sunday that uh, the objective here is in the court of public opinion undermine the investigation undermine the credibility of of Bob Mueller and his team and uh that's, uh, that's not good for the long-term health of, the, of, the, of the, our institutions in this country.
1: What about the, the, what about, uh, uh, the fundamental underlying argument that um, this was all a contrivance? Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 you ask, know, you, I often, ask you this.
2: David, I've often thought about, you know, if it hadn't been for President Obama tasking us to do that intelligence community assessment, Uh, I wonder what would have happened, because that was the catalyst for a whole series of events that are yet unfolding to include the establishment of the the special counsel. It all started with that intelligence community assessment documenting the Russian meddling. And it was only because President Obama told us to do it, and also do it before the end of his administration, and put out as much of it as possible unclassified. So the key judgments that were rendered in the unclassified version are identical to the key judgments in the highly classified version, and the substantiation for which was was overwhelming. Now, the business about the extent to which the president or any of his campaign were colluding with the Russians, all that, I don't know. I I, I still don't, and that's why— it's very important that somehow there there be a, a a resolution to this, that the Mueller investigation, one way or another, uh, clear this up
1: and get, and remove this cloud over 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 the nation. But as we sit here, the president and his supporters on television in Congress have really raised the ante in terms of coloring the Mueller investigation as a political. Witch hunt is the word that the president likes right. to use. I wonder because you are a student of techniques that regimes use, right. that administrations use. Do you see things in here that uh, are reminiscent of? Well, oh, other- absolutely. I mean, this is uh, this is uh, regrettably is
2: uh, comports with uh, Russian tradecraft, and this this is a, a case study in the use, skillful use, I might add, and effective use. Because I think what what he's doing is sticking
1: mm-hmm.
2: in a court of public opinion, which is which is regrettable. But this is a patented Russian, and before that Soviet, technique, and the whole objective: so doubt, discord, uh, so that you know you can't get to truth. Uh, there's it, it could be this, it could be that, and that, this is a, this is what the Russians exploited, by the way, in a campaign. And they're very, they're very good at it, and, uh, and, uh, and I think this is exactly the strategy that uh, the president and his uh, team are taking. What are the implications of that
1: for our democracy?
2: Well, they're not good uh, because uh, the concern I've had throughout all this is the jeopardy to our uh, our institutions, which are fragile. I mean, there there is not much when you think about it. There's not much difference between. Any institution operating in a democracy and, a, and the same institution operating in, a, in an autocratic uh, environment, and uh, the I think the president is 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 compromising that uh, and is compromising these 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 crucial institutions, like uh, a free press, like an independent judiciary, like an independent FBI, uh, and. Uh, an intelligence community that will tell truth to power even if the power doesn't listen to the truth. And these are these are important institutions in our country and they're, they're under assault. And both internally and then the Russians of course they're exploiting that. And
1: and we unfortunately this the nation is a ripe target. You uh, let me just finish here. You are a student of technology as it's applied in these ways. I mean, you've watched the development of these tools. How much does the um, does does technology itself and the ability to wage cyber war and the ability yeah. to manipulate social media and so on. How much does that put democracies in in jeopardy for manipulation? Well, it, a lot. Um, I will tell you that
2: the the biggest thing biggest biggest single uh, force for change in the intelligence community has been technology. That is what has brought about a huge change just in the intelligence community. And we've gone from a situation where there's consistent dearth of information to an abundance of, of information. And the problem today, because information is so ubiquitous uh, and, and there's this constant volume of it at very high velocities. And uh, this leads to, uh, I think, sloppiness in journalism, The 24-hour news cycle thing and our worship of sound bites, uh, because there's so much information, you have to move on to the to to the next event. And of course, we we should point out we both participate in that
1: environment. But
2: yeah, exactly. And it's so ripe for manipulation, where if people with nefarious purposes in mind, whether foreign or domestic can exploit that and create uncertainties, make make it seem as though you cannot arrive at truth because we have alternative facts or truth is relative, to use, quote, a couple phrases. And that's very dangerous to a democracy where truth and facts, empirical evidence, are crucial. Those are fundamental underpinnings to an effective uh, and true democracy, in my opinion.
1: In addition to Russia... Uh, There are some really emergent issues in the world, China longstanding, and right now North Korea. As we sit here, the president may or may not be headed to Singapore on June 12th uh, to sit down with Kim Jong-un, an unprecedented event, uh, an American president sitting down with a North Korean leader. What, what, how do you, how, what's your analysis of the situation? Well,
2: first, uh, this is one case where I actually agreed with something President Trump has done. And I thought his letter to Kim Jong-un was appropriate. And it elicited—it uh, got the right response, a uh, conciliatory response from, from Kim Jong-un. So I, I think—I uh, th- I do think they should have the summit. I just—I think, though, we should not have great expectations— for a summit. But I think there'd be great value in gripping and grinning and meeting and greeting and all that. But not to expect the the grand bargain on denuclearization, because that won't happen. Uh, But I think it would be a win-win, mutually reciprocal on both parts, to establish a regular mechanism for communicating back and forth, which could serve to maybe restrict some of the bellicose rhetoric that we've seen publicly uh, in the past. What would really be useful in this case, and, and our presence, not known for this, would be for him to go on a listening tour. I think it would be extremely useful to hear from the horse's mouth, first time ever, you know, North Korea is a family-owned country, and get from the horse's mouth, what is it, the question that I'd like to hear answered, what is it that, what would it take for you to feel secure enough so you don't need nuclear weapons? Now, that could be a pretty steep price tag, so we shouldn't commit to anything, but I think it'd be very useful if we could hear hear what it is, what it would take, so they don't they feel they don't need nuclear weapons. And China- I was overwhelmed when I was there. Well, Dave, just one more thought: when I went there, I, you know, studied the Korean Peninsula ever since I served there in the mid '80s, and I was blown away by the magnitude and depth of the paranoia and siege
1: mentality that prevails among the elite in in North Korea. Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. Uh, Jim Clapper, so good to have you here. And thank you for coming to the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago.
2: Well, thanks, David, for having me. and It is great to be here, and uh, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the discussion. Thank you.
1: And I would be remiss if I didn't say thanks for your half-century of service yeah. to the country. Thanks. I appreciate that.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.